guy. Ever wonder what it's like to face a 350-pound lineman who wants to smash you into the ground? I know what that feels like. Scott Mitchell here, and I want to tell you about my podcast, Helmets Off, where I talk about the pressures of being an NFL quarterback and some of the other pressures pro athletes face when the helmet is off. It's a podcast, and you can get it free on Google Play, Apple Podcasts, and at kslsports.com. I'm Scott Trout, CEO of the domestic litigation firm Cordell & Cordell. We help men deal with the life changes triggered by divorce, such as child custody and property division, among many others. But life changes also occur after divorce. These changes can make parts of your existing court order irrelevant or harder to follow. If you feel a modification to your court orders might be necessary, talk to us at Cordell & Cordell. We're a partner men can count on. Contact CordellCordell.com, 1065 East Hillsdale Boulevard, Suite 310, Foster City, California, 94404. This is Innovation and Leadership, where we interview Navy SEALs, venture capitalists, pro athletes, best-selling authors, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of high achievers as we can get to come on the show. Today's episode is going to be from our mini-series that we created with Corporate Alliance, asking top CEOs and executives and entrepreneurs who have had very large exits, specifically about their thoughts on leadership and people. This is part two of our episode with John Dudash. And this wasn't a case of not having the guts. This wasn't a case of of, of wanting to be liked. Uh, this was a case, all these cases were guys that were relatively productive, who were beloved in the organization, who everybody said had value, but I knew strategically they didn't fit and they didn't belong. And they weren't performing to the level that our organization was growing. The organization was growing past their skill set, and nothing was going to make it catch up. Also, I want to talk to you about one of our show's sponsors. I met these guys back on episode six. CEO Zach Smith was telling me all about starting a skateboard company and how much he hated doing the bookkeeping uh, for a skateboard shop and how he really uh, got led to start this business, Bookly, that's a hybrid combining bookkeeping software and human services. And I'll tell you why I let them become a sponsor. It's because I use their service now. I don't love paying 50 bucks an hour for bookkeepers to do stuff that I know software could do way, way cheaper. But uh, I don't love bookkeeping at all. So I want a real live human who knows what they're talking about to help me with the stuff I don't understand. Uh, Probably the straw that broke the camel's back for me, though, the thing that put me over the top was that they could do my taxes and payroll also. Um, So totally suggest checking them out. Go to their website, bookly.co and check out their flat rates. I've been super happy with them. So now on to today's episode. If you missed part one, please go back and hear about why he went back and did his MPA at 40 and uh, some of the different things he's done running businesses in different cities. But um, John, we were talking on the on the break just for a minute about um, an individual that you feel like showed you a new way of doing things that, that kind of inspired you for, for your future. Can you tell that story? Sure. The, uh, uh, it was really an interesting time uh, back early in my career, actually, with the uh, Sanford Corporation, which was a division of Newell Rubbermaid. Uh, Sanford is most famous for their Sharpie pens. Uh, it was an exploding company. When I joined the company, they were $60 million. When I left, they were $1.2 billion. So we grew very, very uh, fast through organic uh, means and through acquisition. And one of the acquisitions we made was of uh, a company called uh, Faber-Castell, which was the second largest pen company in that time, and a very, very fierce competitor of Sanford's, uh, to the point where we had friendly relations at the uh, individual level 
but very unfriendly relations at the corporate level. And uh, we acquired them. Uh, it was a very competitive situation. It would be like uh, the Yankees acquiring the Red Sox or something of that degree. And uh, uh, it, was, uh, it, it was an interesting time. And I was part of sales leadership. And we had uh, seven of us in the sales leadership team. And, and my mentor, in fact, the godfather of my son, um, was running the sales organization at that time. And he literally uh, was tasked with the uh, merging the two sales organizations. And it was a totally redundant sales organization. For every person we had in that organization, they had a similar, equally trained person. All with the same relationships, all with the same customer base. Um, it was literally uh, a mirror organization of one another. The only thing that differentiated the two, was the pro- other than the products, was the personalities and talent of the people. And uh, we were the acquiring organization. I made the assumption, being a young sales guy, that we would fire all of their people and keep all of our people. I mean, we were the bigger company. We were growing faster. Uh, We were literally dominating them in the marketplace. And uh, he pulled me aside uh, after he had fired every one of the Sanford guys and kept every one of the Faber guys, except for myself, and said, um, we're going to go with their team. And we're going to let go of our team. And I remember asking him, why in the world would you do that? And he said, they're better than we are. He said, in this one area, that group of sales leadership, sales leaders, regional managers, vice presidents are better. And we're going to keep the better group. Companies get better when you pick the better talent. Just because you won the war doesn't mean you have the best soldiers. You may have a better general. You may add more soldiers. You may have had bigger weapons. But the soldiers themselves, man for man, doesn't, winning and losing doesn't dictate who had the better man. And um, in this particular case, uh, he was right. Uh, the people we kept all went on to brilliant careers uh, with our organization and then outside of the organization. Um, every one of them really did excel. And it was, uh, it was an eye-opener for me in that you realize that you don't, you don't let emotional criteria dictate professional judgment. Uh, the reality is uh, he weighed all of the people in, in this opportunity to strengthen our business. He had some very good friends who had been with the company a long time who didn't make the cut, and yet the company was better. Uh, and the performance over the next five years that we all worked together proved he was right. And it, uh, it made me learn that in any situation where you have an opportunity to improve your organization, whether one of your best friends quits the organization, they get a bigger, better job somewhere, and they leave, and they're a key in the organization, go find somebody better. They're out there. Always have the opportunity to strengthen your organization, whether it's through acquisition, whether it's through hiring and firing, um, never leave yourself with a weak link and um, for, for any reason, but certainly not for emotional ones. And uh, it, was a, uh, it was an eye-opener for me as a, as a young guy, and uh, I've, I've always lived that throughout my career when I've had very, very key people and people close to me leave the organization. I've always viewed it as an opportunity uh, because there's somebody out there who's better, and I, it's my job to go find them. Uh, just like everybody I think on my staff can take my job someday. There's nobody who works in, in the executive staff of Mighty who couldn't be CEO. They all won't, but one of them will with any luck at all and with hopefully 
uh, what, what I, with the, the, the training and the opportunities I provide them, uh, one of them will emerge as the next CEO of Mighty, and that's also part of my job. And uh, that's, you know, that's really important. Well, you know, this show is about the intersection of people and leadership, right? Uh, you think about somebody setting an example like that specifically in the way they're leading people, right? Um, why do you think um, not everyone has that level of like professional will and personal humility like that? It sounds like he just has like a, a commitment, like a deep commitment to like deep self-honesty compared to he would like to keep his friends, but when he's really honest with himself, the other guys are the right guys. And just that like discipline to do what he thinks the right thing to do for the company is rather than maybe what he feels like doing of keeping his buddies around. Why do you think not everybody makes that makes the right choice there? Well, as we talked about in the last segment, I think it's harder to um, maintain that parallel uh, relationship distance. I mean, it's uh, I think most people find it hard not to intersect personally and professionally if they allow themselves to. And so they become biased. They become uh unwilling not unable because certainly they're able but they become unwilling to do the right thing for fear of of uh an emotional uh reason criteria yeah the emotional cost of yourself even you know i couldn't sleep at night if i let dave go uh you know i just couldn't do it i've heard in my career i have heard more executives say as long as i'm with so and so as long as i'm with this company you will never get fired because I love you. I mean, the insinuation is right that you're my boy, you're my guy, you're the, you're the gal that got me here, and I'll always have your back. Well, that's just not right. I mean, that's not what they pay you to do. That's not the world changes. That may be right in the moment, but it certainly may not be right a week from now. Um, circumstances change, industries change, markets change, uh, and <laughs> and objectives change, and strategies change. And certain, you know, the old uh, Jim Collins book, you know, I mean, the certain people that belong on the bus today may not belong on the bus tomorrow, regardless of the amount of seats the bus has. So it, uh, it, it a, a good introspective executive has to understand their own motivation for doing anything with their eye on the, the end game and, and why they're here and why they're in the role they're in. The minute you lose sight of that, you're done. You're, you're dead in the water. And it doesn't come easy. I think people, to your original question, don't do it because it's hard. It's hard. If you allow yourself to get too close, it's then hard to make the tough calls. If you stay far and far away, you're too distant from the, uh, from the actual performance of your people to know who is good and who's bad. So having that balance and creating that culture is not an easy thing. I don't mean to imply that it is, but it's part and parcel of being a CEO and running a large organization and managing a lot of people. And if you start from the place of let's do what's best for the people, you know, I have two, I have two real roles in this organization. If you want to create a pyramid model at the very top of that pyramid is return for my stockholders and care of my people. I want to give them a place that they can be employed at for 50 years. I want to give their families a place to come to work to when they graduate, when their kids graduate college. And I want to give my, my stockholders and shareholders and stakeholders all that they imagined they would get when they put me in this role. So if those two things are satisfied, if I can keep the health and welfare of this business as strong as I can make it and, and give my, uh, my, uh, 
my stockholders the return that they expect, well, then I think I've done a pretty good job. Um, you know, though, I can see why you look up to that guy and why it had such an impact on you. Because I think that type of intellectual honesty and like the guts to do what we think we should do instead of what we feel like doing, that that's a natural magnet for other people. It makes us want to be like someone like that. It makes us want to be friends with someone <laughs> like that, right? And I just think like for me, um, there's absolutely been those times where I, I kept staff way past when we knew they weren't working yeah. for the business. And um, I think that I could rationalize that I cared too much about them, whatever. But when I'm really honest with myself, I think I just didn't have the guts to do what I thought I should do when I thought I should do it. So I came up with all sorts of justifications. Um, and yet when I look at the people who are willing to do the hard right thing instead of the easy wrong thing, those are the people I want to do business with. Those are the people I want to spend time with, you know? Yeah. You know, you make a good point. And I think it's, you know, it's funny you say that I've made probably four decisions in my life, personnel decisions. Uh, I've made a ton of decisions in my life. I regret, but <laughs> personnel decisions, uh, at, at the high levels that I think that, uh, that I regret. And the, the funny part of this story is that everybody knew it, but me, I thought, and this wasn't a case of not having the guts. This wasn't a case of, of, of wanting to be liked. Uh, this was a case, all these cases were guys that were relatively productive, who were beloved in the organization, who everybody said uh, had value but I knew strategically they didn't fit and they didn't belong and they weren't performing to the level that our organization was growing. The organization was growing past their skill set and nothing was going to make it catch up. And every single time, like I said, four times, I know exactly which people these were. Every single time I thought I was being the benevolent leader. I thought I was being the guy that everyone would respect for keeping on a contributing member of the team, even though we're having to, pull them along with this even though they can't catch up they're still part of that they belong on the bus and every single time I fired them and every single time the people I respected most in the organization came up to me and said what took you so long you're smarter than that that we did we couldn't figure out what the heck you were thinking and I'll never forget it because there's no such thing as a benevolent leader. There's only good, smart leaders. You know, benevolence is in and of itself a counterproductive trait. That doesn't mean you can't be kind. It doesn't mean you can't be generous. It doesn't mean you can't reward where reward is earned. But benevolence for benevolence sake never prospers an organization. It only drags down your top performers. And uh, I should have been given more time, effort, and care to the guys that were dragging that guy along instead of protecting the guy uh, for all the wrong reasons. And I've, I've never done it in my career, and it wasn't because I was afraid to do it. I ended up doing it anyway. It wasn't because I wanted to be well-liked. It was because I thought culturally it was the right thing to do. Benevolence was the thing to do, and that's the right word. It wasn't kindness in this case. There's, I, I let them go very kindly. We took good care of them. But the reality is, it hurt the organization. Everyone around me knew it but me. And you allow yourselves, you allow yourself, if you allow yourself 
to rationalize, to your point. It was the right word, and it's exactly the right uh, picture you painted. If you allow yourself to rationalize uh, failure, it won't change, and all you do is lose. You lose in terms of your respect through the rest of the organization, and the organization loses because you tax other high performers. I'm just sitting here on the other side of your desk laughing, right? <laughs> because I like. Are you I laughing with me or at me? <laughs> no, I'm feeling like you're like telling one of my stories almost word to word in a completely different situation. We, you know, when I was running that investment fund in Canada, we had hired this $300,000 a year guy from one of the big banks, and he was just going to take us to the next level. And he was just sucking wind the whole time. Okay? <laughs> and uh, when we finally let him go, uh, my in house counsel was just like, what took you so exactly. long? Isn't it funny? That was the, that's the big epiphany, right? Is that you think you're being perceived as, as, as because of your actions. It's one way, and it's, it's so far the other direction. And then you look, and these people are smart people. Who, and you think you're pretty smart. <laughs> and then you look at this guy, like you said, and, and, you, know, and you just, you, and it hits you, right? Like a thunderbolt. Your, your chin hits your chest. And you go, God, this is, I was so stupid. <laughs> I don't know what I was thinking. No kidding. Well, l- let's talk about this. Let's talk about you know, the intellectual honesty to not rationalize and to make the hard right decision versus the easy wrong decision. Um, you talked about becoming friends with some of your clients who bought a lot from you or just anybody in the business community. Who, who's somebody else that you feel like lives that or, or that you respect you know, some one of your friends that you do business with. Oh well, we have a number. Uh, I'd rather not name names sure, per sure. se. No, but uh, but this is the client, or this is a colleague. Or yeah, yeah. The, uh, the uh, it usually starts from a position of of, of acquisition of, of of a customer, right? I mean, you uh, you're, you're with them in meetings. You get to interact with them. Uh, if if it could be a some huge. Um, um, cathartic event where you've had a big problem a shipping delivery's gone wrong or a huge opportunity you help the customer with and that usually speeds the relationship process pretty quickly but if it's a normal interactive thing i just try to communicate and and all my people we teach and we try to portray a genuine desire to have the best customer experience we can give you whatever that means to you It, it varies buyer to buyer person to person and in the course of that interaction, if they believe you, if they believe you're just not after their pocketbook and you're trying to get your hand in their pocket, uh, they will begin to allow to, to open up and allow you into their, into their persona and into their personal life a little bit. And uh, you'll get to understand them. And then if you, if you hit it off, like I say, if your two personalities jive, then it, it's, it's easy to stay friends. Uh, I've had at least... Uh, five clients in the seven years I've run Mighty Light fly to Salt Lake. People like to ski and uh, stay at my house uh, with their families and um, go skiing. Uh, it's not an invitation I give uh, across the board, but um, uh, we have a number of, of our clients who uh, we've invited to the house. And my wife knows them. I know their wives. And uh, and we have a good time together. But But I just think about you describing that. I mean, it sounds like the reverse Godfather, right? (laughs) It's not business, it's personal, okay? You think about what that, the value of your company to invest at that personal level in them. Like, they probably would have been a client whether you let them stay at your house or not. Oh, for sure. Right? For sure. But when you think... We have pretty good products. Okay. (laughs) Um, But when you think about the long-term value of 
whether it's a service provider, could be your outside lawyers, could be a client, right? You think about that, um, that willingness on your part to go that extra mile, what a benefit to your organization it is because you secure that relationship which secures everybody else's salary around here. Yeah, and that yeah, and we don't do it for that reason, but you know, I would never bring anybody into my personal life that I didn't value the personal relationship. The the relationship with the customer is is identical to the relationship I have with my direct staff. Meaning I have no illusions that if we drop the ball on a customer, they're going to not buy from us anymore. But I'd remain friends with them. I also have no expectation that they're going to buy from us just because we have this personal relationship. I've simply been fortunate enough in my life to meet some really special people through business uh, that uh, I found I wanted to spend time with, as it did my wife and as did uh, our families. And they apparently share that, that feeling, and, uh, and uh, it, it's worked out well. I'm not so naive to think that it doesn't carry over into the business relationship and that it does help Mighty in some degree, but that's certainly not what drives the motivation from it. So I totally follow you on that. And I guess where I'm going with this is it does take some level of personal vulnerability or personal risk to go first. You know what I mean? Like, well, yeah, that's true. Right? It, to, to, um, when, you're, when, when you are moving those relationships to deeper levels, the like – Whoever goes first, like there's <laughs> there's that opportunity to be rejected. And a lot of us get really concerned about our image and our own self-worth or something and and are not willing to put ourselves out there and to care about staff to this level or care about clients to that level because we don't want to risk being rejected. Yeah, I guess. That's it, uh, but it sets uh, an example for everybody else. If you at the leader are willing to do that, it seems like it would set an example for the rest of the the rest of the company of it's okay to care even if, even if it doesn't get returned or something. Let's uh, end it with this. Um, going back to um, maybe the most valuable piece of advice you think you could give our listeners and, and other people who um, are trying to grow a business and, and lead people and, and build relationships outside of the business. Um, when it comes to leadership and people, what do you think would be, if you could only give – one piece of closing advice here. What do you think it would be? Wow, I uh, I wish I was that uh, uh, smart that I could have a piece of advice that would be that meaningful. But it, it, I've found that if you learn what there is to learn in whatever your chosen field, learn all you can, work hard. I mean, there's nothing better than hard work. Um, and then lastly, uh, be passionate. Passion is different than hard work. Passion comes from the core of you. You have to be passionate about the success you want, the success for your people, and genuinely uh, care about the end game. And the end game has many definitions. It's not just financial. It's not just your own career. It's not just your people's welfare. It's all of that. There's a ball somewhere where all that's in that you should be striving to grab. And if you can passionately and intelligently and doggedly uh, chase that ball, um, I think you win. As, as an example, do you have any thoughts about people who would want to up their game on any of those levels of like, and if you feel like you need to get more passionate or you feel like you need to get lear more learning, my recommendation is... Uh, 
I, well, first of all, of course, uh, education formal is 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 the easiest. But yeah, I would I would argue, you know, interact. The networking opportunities that are out there in many many uh, ways are uh, are are the key to this because if you find yourself getting bogged down, or you find yourself losing direction, you find yourself losing your passion, uh, go associate with others who have it. Uh, it's contagious. That's why a great leader always is passionate about some sort of end game or some sort of result. Usually it's uh, someone with a, a vision or a strategy. I think one of the things we have at Mighty that's that's quite attractive is that we have a very clear, strong vision and strategy for where we want to go. And people will embrace that. And if you've somehow lost it, in, in whatever line of work or every path you're on, uh, find other people who, who have it, see how they approach things, and then ask yourself, can I, can I reinvigorate my own passion in my current situation? Or maybe I've got to find a different situation. But, uh, but interact with people who do it. It's contagious, it's, uh, and it's so positive in your personal and professional life. Nothing, in my view, is better for your personal or passionate life, whether it's your interpersonal relationships, your, your job, your faith, anything than passion. I love it. We're going to close there because that's a great place to close. Um, I know we ended last episode with this, but in case somebody missed it, if people do want to find out more about what this Mighty Light Culture actually produces as a product, what's, <laughs> what's the best way to connect with you guys and, and see the products you're making? MightyLight.com, M-I-T-Y-L-I-T-E.com. Great place to start. All the information you'd ever need about our people or our products is is there. And uh, uh, I hope we can uh, help you. Love it. Thanks for making time. Thank you, Jess. Well, that's it for the episode. One other thing I wanted to tell you about. If you remember the guys from Convoy uh, in episodes back, Ken Free and Trent Mano, I went on one of their CEO trips to New York and I met a guy named Brent Thompson, very successful entrepreneur. He was former CEO of Jive Communications, big uh, company now i think three or four hundred million dollars anyways he uh he started a new company called blipbillboards.com i'm super stoked they're a sponsor now but i I remember a year and some ago when i met him i thought it was genius instead of having to buy six months or a year's worth of billboard uh, for thousands of dollars you can buy eight seconds at a time for like 10 or 20 cents you pick what billboard you want it on what time of day you want it to run and it just puts so much power in the hands of of marketers and CEOs who want to try something and see if it works. You can buy as many or as few as you want, change it as many times as you want. Uh, I think now our podcast is being advertised on billboards in like 18 different states because we have these guys as sponsors. We're pretty excited about it. Hope you check out blipbillboards.com. Thanks. Now's the time to find your color, your paint, and everything to get started during red, white, and blue savings at the Home Depot. Transforming your room is easier than ever. With the best deals online and in-store, you can confidently select your color and the tools for your next paint project. Get a colorful new experience and the right paint for the right price. Save $10 on one gallon and $40 off three and five gallons for a limited time only at the Home Depot. More saving, more doing. Limit 25 gallons per household. See store for details.